You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 65 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and with me joining us all the way from far off China is Shane Cole, man of international mystery. Do we see in Moes Berlin? <laughs> Shane, what was the big news this past week? Uh, there was a lot of big news this week, was there not? There's car stuff and iPhone stuff and Prince died. I mean, really, that's the only news that matters. Everything else is secondary. Poor Prince. Yeah. Well, it's a Prince bad year is, for music icons. It is. And, you know, the, the, the only reassuring thing about Prince is Prince doesn't really die, though, doesn't he? Doesn't he just kind of elevate to a higher level? He's, are you saying he's going to be the angel formerly known as Prince now? I choose to believe that. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I actually only know two Prince songs. So, yeah. I only know what's, uh, that I suddenly oh can't remember the name of. There's, oh, what is the name of that song? The Foo Fighters covered it. Oh, gosh. Um, something. I don't know. Anyway, that song exists. And then another one, mm-hmm. the name of which I never knew ever. So I can't forget it. But anyway. Culturally, though, I realize that Prince is, Prince is important. I know he's important to you. I mean, you know, for, for a number of us, he was an artist that just uh, kind of transcended definition. He was sort of ageless in some ways. Did you also temporarily change your name to a symbol? Okay, I'm, I'm going to lie about that. No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about things that are interesting to our listeners, for example. Like, Darling like, Nikki, by the way, is the name of the hotel song. Anyway, yes. Yes. For our listeners who don't care about Prince... You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, I mean, we could go into Computer Blue and, and When Doves Cry and all the old ones. But yeah, our, our listeners should be ashamed of ourselves. Shame. Shame upon them. They should, so, they're listening to us. So they should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Yes, that's absolutely true. And we feel that shame, too. Yes. So we share that in common. It's, it's a community yes. around shame. It really so, is. It's like Catholicism. Well, except we don't have a central leader. We do. It's Neil. He's the Pope of Apple Insider. Our Neil on Earth. Okay. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> Space Pope. Okay. So the Pink Book. Tell me about the Pink Book. Well, it is not a new flavor of frozen yogurt from Pinkberry. I can tell you that much. Okay. What it is. And is it's not new, a nail polish. I mean, it might be. I don't know. I'm not familiar with every brand of nail polish in the world. Okay. Uh, but it is a new color of MacBook. It's not actually pink. It's quote, unquote, I'm doing, if you could see me doing these air quotes, you'd be very impressed with the veracity with which I'm doing them. It's rose gold, uh, which really for the rest of the world means pink. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, new MacBooks, updated MacBooks. They're the same old thing, but they have new Skylake processors. So fun for everyone. What, what's, what's unique about Skylake? What, what does it matter that the 12 inch has Skylake? Uh, Well, it's a performance boost and it apparently gave them an extra hour of battery life. I don't actually know how this was uh, how this was figured out because uh, so Skylake is supposed to be about power per watt, right? Uh, I'm sorry, not I don't mean power in the electrical sense. I mean power in the performance sense. So I guess performance per watt is a better way to say it. Uh, it's supposed to be more efficient, essentially. And the problem with that is that Microsoft and all of the various Windows-based OEMs are having huge problems with Skylake power management, uh, which is why you haven't seen a flood of Skylake, of high-end Skylake uh, Ultrabooks. 
But Apple, because they have some sort of devil voodoo, uh, apparently managed to make Skylake work with OS X, uh, work nicely with OS X, and got a 20%-ish speed boost and an extra hour of battery life. So, you know, good on them. So is this a competent computer? I mean, I guess that depends on your definition of competent computer. Okay, so the, the former MacBook, the 12-inch, was a beautiful shaped machine. And I know people who loved it very much, but if you happen to use a lot of browser tabs or, or push it in any sense, you suddenly felt that you were bumping up against the performance, yeah. right? Well, it got much better in El Capitan, but yeah, it was it was pretty rough. Okay. So is this one, you know, is, is well, this one going to be suitable for a I wanna, wider range of people? Or I, I want to say yes, but then I haven't used it yet. The problem is that there's, people are breaking down into specific groups now. Like as computing matures, right? There, there are different groups of people. And there are people for whom an iPad is really good. You know, like my mom with an iPad Pro and a keyboard, uh, with her entire computing life would do just fine. Yeah. Right. So for her, that's the future of personal computing. Yeah. I mean, that's her present also. So there you go. Uh, for me, I obviously can't do that. You know, I spend my life in professional applications all day long. So I, every two years-ish, I buy whatever the most powerful uh, Apple laptop is at the time, and that's what I do. Uh, but there's a, a group of people in between who are the ones that made the MacBook Air the best-selling Mac, right? And it's people who do mostly the stuff they could do on the iPad, like web browsing and email, but occasionally have to do stuff like do a pivot table in Excel or use Quicken or stuff that you just can't do on an iPad. And... The MacBook, I think, is the new MacBook Air, right? It's the new, in two, in a year, or maybe as long as two years, but I think in a year, the MacBook Air will be gone, the, Mac, the MacBook will be the $1,000 Mac, and that will be the new mainstream computer. Okay. So who should buy the new MacBook Air? Because those were updated as well. Uh, anybody who doesn't care about the retina display really is the answer to that question. They, the Mac, right now, the MacBook's main selling proposition is that it has a retina display, which the MacBook Air doesn't have. You know? Right, but isn't the processor in the MacBook Pro, like the uh, the 13-inch, better than the one in the MacBook Air? Uh, yeah, well, the 13-inch and the 15-inch MacBook Pros have proper i5 and i7s. Okay. Um, I mean, they're still the mobile versions, but they're, you know, they're not really gimped that much. Uh, the MacBook Air is a little bit slower, but still fine. And the MacBook is a little bit slower still, but still, for most people, fine enough. Like, the, the MacBook Air is right now what... I'm struggling to think of a good a good comp. Like, maybe the old Power Macs were, you know? Like, sort of engineering showpieces. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, like, I think that's where it is right now. It's Apple saying, look, here's what we can do. This is the future of our thing, you know, uh, and it costs us a little more to make it. So it costs you a little more to buy it. Uh, but in a year or two, this will be the mainstream. So basically anybody who doesn't do anything heavy, but anybody who does stuff that's too heavy for an iPad, but not heavy enough for a MacBook pro is probably okay to buy a MacBook. A MacBook or a MacBook Air? Which which one do you think is the... Well, I mean, it depends on your financial situation. I mean, quite honestly, you get more computer for your buck with the MacBook Air. Oh. Like, more computing power. Okay. 
but with the MacBook, you get a Retina right. display. So it's it's what what matters to you in your budget. Yeah. Right. Cool. And and was it a surprise that those were updated? Was that sort of a, an unexpected thing? Because it didn't happen with a fancy announcement. That it wasn't an event. It just sort of happened. I mean, it was unexpected in that we thought Skylake would never ever arrive. But no, I mean, coming up to WWDC, there's always some kind of pre-event update. Like anything that they don't want to give uh, space to at WWDC, but still want to get some kind of uh, fanfare for, they always do before. Yeah, and this is so this is kind of a like the MacBook Air. The bumps to the MacBook Air weren't even processor related. MacBook Air is still uh, on, I think, Haswell. And the only thing they got is 8 gigs of RAM across the board. So it's a minor update to both platforms. You know, it's slightly slightly better for the MacBook because it gets uh, a bunch more performance. Um, but it's still overall, in, in Apple's terms, it's a minor update. Okay. Well, that 8 gig of RAM is going to help. So I'm glad to hear that finally is standard. Yeah, that should have been standard a long time ago. Yes, it should. So what about the Macs that aren't a MacBook Air or aren't the MacBook? There's there's still the Pro 13 and the Pro 15. And there's still the Mac Pro and my favorite that you, you think I'm insane for, the Mac Mini. Uh, yeah, you're ridiculous. The MacBook Pro It's not ridiculous. <laughs> it is. The MacBook it's Pros, not. I think, are going to get a, a, like a big overhaul. Uh, I think they're due for a MacBook-style refinishing, which may or may not happen at WWDC. I, as somebody who is, whose Apple Care warranty is about to lapse, I'm hoping for one so I can go ahead and buy a new one. Um, but I, you know, it's it's sort of fifty-fifty right now. Some people say yes, or some well I should say some well-informed people say yes, and some well-informed people say no. So who knows? Uh, but yes, the Mac Mini, you're a little bit ridiculous. I can't believe you love that thing so much. I'm not. Well, here, here's why. Okay, there are people who don't need a laptop, who need a perfectly competent computer, but don't need to spend and splash out on an iMac. And the original Mac Mini was the very most affordable way to get into a decent Mac and bring your own keyboard, mouse, and monitor. I think there's mm-hmm. still a place for it. I know people who could use one, who have held on to old Mac Minis far longer than Apple thinks is reasonable. And it's it's time. There should be a fresh one. The last one is, it's, what, two or three years old? Come on. I mean, I see your point. And it's, especially in the enterprise, there's a lot of places where people are better served by Mac Minis just because of the like the ridiculously shrinking hardware acquisition budgets in IT. But the normal person, like a, a dude on the street, is, I think, better served by a MacBook Air than a Mac Mini. So here, here's what I think Apple's perspective, and you can tell me I'm seeing it wrong, but in the old days when the Mac Mini was introduced, it was positioned as this is the most affordable way to get into a Mac. And at that time, the Mac was the future of personal computing. And now that Apple keeps saying loudly that the future of personal computing is the iPad, they don't feel they need to update the Mac Mini because they want to direct people to the iPad. Well, I, yeah, I see, I don't see it that way. I think they don't okay. update the Mac Mini because the Mac Mini market is different now, right? Like the people who were going to buy a Mac Mini back when the Mac Mini was first introduced, six hundred bucks was a lot for a computer, right? Yeah, six hundred bucks was an expensive computer at that time. Yeah, but yeah. it was the most affordable Mac. 
Yeah, but it's not now. There are more for there's for eight ninety nine. You can get an eleven inch MacBook Air, which performs with an external monitor. Like if you're going to grab a Mac Mini, you're not going to put a four K monitor on it, right? You're going to grab a ten eighty P Samsung for a hundred bucks from Best Buy, and that's what you're going to use. And you get the same performance out of an eight ninety nine MacBook Air, and the benefit of having a portable computer. So, I think. That's really the problem, is that the the bottom has fallen out of the Mac Mini market. Other than people who use them for servers and enterprise customers, which I think is the only reason it still exists, if we're being honest. The same reason the iPad so, 2 stayed around for 97 years. Yeah, well, so your, your recommendation is get the MacBook Air, use it in, in clamshell mode with a keyboard and mouse and uh, screen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how I use my computer. I don't have a MacBook Air, but that's how I use my computer every single day. All right. Well, there you have it. That's, With that's... the Dell P2715Q 4K display, if you are in the market. It's under $1,000. is basically an ultra-sharp display. And it comes with Dell's, um, what do they call it, the advanced pixel warranty, uh, where they'll give you a next-day replacement if you have a bad pixel. Comes highly yeah. recommended by Shane Cole. Yes, it is extraordinary uh, for the price. So when do you think we're going to see a new Mac Pro? And I have to ask, just because that's the other Mac that is very long in tooth. Uh, whenever the new Xeons are ready, I would guess. Yeah. God knows when that will actually be. I mean, they've been announced about 17 times. So the question is, what's going on over at Intel? They're in trouble, man. <laughs> I mean, they're running, they are also running up to the point where they're being squeezed on two ends, right? They're being squeezed on one side by the fact that, as we've been saying for months, computers are becoming good enough for most people you know there's not no longer are there revolutionary advances in computing power every few months and they're being squeezed on the other end by the laws of physics you know intel's advantage forever has been manufacturing right it's not necessarily design it's that their their fabs are extraordinary they're They're great they're they're waiting exactly (laughs) taboo oh my god the fabs are so fab yeah they're better than everybody else you know and that advantage is going away because you, the universe says, screw you. you know? um, they really missed, there was a piece out yesterday or today uh, saying, because uh, doing a bunch of layoffs, right? They're laying off, what, 12,000 people? Yeah. Something in that area. Uh, there's a piece out today reminding everyone that Intel had the opportunity to build the iPhone chip and have the iPhone based on either an x86 variant or xscale, which was their ARM-compatible chip that they got with DEC. Uh, and they said no. Paul Nolini, who was CEO at the time, was like, there's no economy of scale here. We, we decided we didn't want to do it. Um, and killing off that mobile business was probably the, the nail in Intel's short, medium-term coffin. But this, this is good that we bring up Intel because they're in an iPhone 7 rumors. You know, the Qualcomm earnings call, the Qualcomm CEO said something to the effect of that a big customer may consider an alternate source to Qualcomm modems. Qualcomm modems are the modems that are in every iPhone for data and for calling. And they're in basically every phone ever. He didn't name who the customer was and he didn't name who the other supplier was. But I should have said every modern right? phone. We know that Samsung, who is Qualcomm's other large customer besides Apple, already uses multiple suppliers. So we, we believe, right, that. He's talking about Apple as the customer. Well, Qualcomm, 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 Qualcomm is the. This is a really weird name when you think about it. Is has been and is the premier 
manufacturer of cell modems and has for years has been and still holds a commanding yeah. lead over anyone else. Um, Intel bought uh, Infineon specifically to get into this business, but Qualcomm is still so massively ahead that there's no possible way they're going to lose all of this business at the same time, right? Yeah. There are, now, at, that, at, that, that said, that said, there have been persistent rumors for a really long time that Apple is trying to build their own baseband chips, which, if true, would be a serious problem. Well, they used someone else's baseband prior to iPhone 4. Yes, and went to Qualcomm because Qualcomm is the only way you get CDMA because Qualcomm owns all of the CDMA patents. Right. And so moving to cover Verizon and Sprint and CDMA carriers required going to Qualcomm. And, you know, ever since then, they've wanted to make one phone that was suitable as a worldwide SKU. Well, you know, Qualcomm, if you buy a Samsung, you have to buy the European Samsung or the U.S. Samsung or the one that works for all of these. If you buy the, the iPhone, you have the modem that's worldwide compatible. Well, Qualcomm has a similar so that's advantage with going to another one. They have a similar advantage in LTE also. Go on. Uh, in that they own a ton of foundational LTE patents, and they're the only company that I'm aware of that makes a fully world-compatible single-modem solution. In, uh, Intel is close. Uh, the X-something, X9-something is very close, but unless something has changed recently, they're not quite at Qualcomm. I mean, it's totally possible that there is. There's something I don't know about um, that Apple may have an exclusive on, in which case I would feel free to call me an idiot. Uh, but the same things that gave Qualcomm an advantage before are still giving them an advantage today. So I don't know. Yeah. I think if Apple switches away from Qualcomm, I don't think it's going to be to Intel. I think it's going to be to their own in-house thing. I, I'm really curious by the, the proposition of the one you just named where the idea is that Apple makes their own baseband. That seems like a path that is is unusual, right? You know, well, they, so they it, do... but it's not, though. There, so there are two reasons why they would do that. One, well, yeah. because they don't want to be dependent upon another company, obviously. But two, and I think this is maybe a little bit cloak and dagger, but the second reason is that the baseband chip in your phone is it rules everything, right? It, if, for example, the National Security Agency were to have a baseband exploit, they own every phone. It doesn't matter what security you put in the phone. Every bit of communication through the phone goes through the baseband. Voice, text, data, everything. If you own the baseband, you own the phone. And I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, given Apple's very well-documented paranoia in this area recently, I mean, and well-founded paranoia for that matter, that they feel it's a security imperative to own the modem stack. I would not be surprised for that to be the, or at least one of the primary driving forces behind doing their own modem. Uh, that's intriguing, and I like the idea very much. You know, that's that's one of the things that Apple has always been been pretty um, insisted upon is owning the technologies involved. You know, they have partners, of course, but but the more control they have, the more confident they are, and the more confident they are that they can make a better product. 
you're, you're totally right yeah, you, with the renewed focus on security and protecting the user. It, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially if you look at it in the context of everything else they're doing. The If you line up the logic boards from iPhone 1 to iPhone 6S side by side, the percentage of silicon that has an Apple logo on it has grown exponentially. They're doing every every year they do something else new in house. You know, um, they've acquired a ton of fabulous semiconductor talent. Uh, I mean, they've always had a big VLSI group, and they've always had decent semi capacity in house. But they're doing a ton of ton more custom stuff now. And I wouldn't be surprised eventually to see them get to the point where everything but, say, everything that doesn't require a massive economy of scale, like RAM, for example, will be done mostly in-house. I could see, you get to, they're probably never going to own their own fab, but I could absolutely see you get to a point where everything but NAND and maybe, maybe touchscreen controllers, um, just like commodity stuff like that, won't be done. But everything else, I think, will be a completely Apple solution eventually. You know, it's interesting that you talk about lining up the logic boards side by side. Um, you know, there's there's a, a company that's sponsoring the podcast this week called iCracked, and iCracked provides iPhone and iPad repair that comes to you. So if you need to take your phone apart and, and repair or replace a part, they would come to you and do it in front of you, and you could see the, the logic boards lined up side by side as they were working. And they're great for busy professionals and businesses who don't have time to wait days or spend hours getting their phone fixed. They're fast, they're convenient, they're professional, and they come at the time and location of your choosing to your home office, your coffee shop. They, they work around your schedule. And I'm sure you have this kind of a source in in China, right, Shane? This kind of thing happens all the time. But uh, this yeah. is a U.S. company, and to have this kind of service in the U.S. where they come to you is pretty cool. Sorry, Go I was going to say, I don't know anywhere that comes to you, but there are like – a zillion little places on the street, you know, where you can go and drop your phone off and they fix it in five minutes. They don't have like scooters that come to you and do it for you? Uh, no, they don't, surprisingly. Missed opportunity. Well, I, I cracked here in the U.S. has it, so we're cooler for once. Um, they have 5,000 on-demand professional phone repair technicians in 600 cities and more across the U.S. and they're all trained and background checked. And it's it's totally cool. So they're providing a special offer for our listeners, and listeners can get a free tempered glass screen protector with your on-demand repair. Request your repair at iCracked.com slash insider. That's iCracked.com slash insider. Have you ever broken a screen on your phone? I have, yes, twice. Twice. Yeah. That sucks. I have I have not actually really shattered one. I've, I've been pretty lucky. Uh, I broke my OG iPhone and then didn't break another one until my iPhone 6S. Cool. Yeah, it fell off my coffee table, uh, maybe <laughs> one and a, one and a half feet to the ground, and hit exactly on the corner of the screen and shattered. Ouch! It's yeah. terrible. So I went seven years without breaking a phone. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can make it another seven years. I hope so. Tell me about this this vehicle thing in Berlin. We know Apple's working on a car. We've got them talking to BMW at some point. What's what's the newest thing here? This vehicle thing in Berlin, uh, apparently Apple has a top secret. It's not really top secret if it's being reported in the news, but anyway, apparently they have a top secret uh, electric car laboratory in Berlin, which is staffed by lots of young, fun engineers um, working on, apparently, an electric car. I still don't think Apple's ever going to make a car. I think it's ridiculous. 
I am well on record of this, and I may one day look like a really huge moron, but I still think everybody. I was about to say, what if you're wrong? (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, (laughs) the news is uh, that they have a a secret automotive development facility in the German capital. And what they do there? Who knows? But 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 we know that they're not working with BMW because BMW took their ball and said, "We are going home." Yes, we are going home. We do not want to share the customer data with you. But BMW is also kind of screwed because so the electric car part of BMW is called BMW i, and it was operated not like a skunk works. It wasn't secret, but it was a separate division. Um, and a company, the name of which escapes me at this moment, but backed by Tencent, which is a massive, massive Chinese internet company, um, tens of billions of dollars stole many of their top executives from BMW i, including the guy who was basically soup to nuts responsible for the i8, which is an extraordinary electric sports car. I saw one yesterday. Yeah. The i8 is an amazing... The i8 is one of the only cars I've ever seen that actually looked like the concept. Yes. Yeah. Like the the car that was released to the public looked 90% like the concept that they showed off at the car shows. And it was brilliant on the road. I, I swear, that thing passed me last night, and it was incredible. Yeah, they're amazing cars. I actually really like the i3, too. Like, if I was going to buy an electric car, as a person who lives in the city, I would buy an i3. Uh, no question. But yeah, so BMW's a little screwed. And so God knows what Apple will do. I don't know. All right, but, but we know that Apple's doing something, because Apple picked up Tesla's former VP of Vehicle Engineering. Yes. I so why... Take- I, so why, I, why, did, why did they hire that guy? What, what's going on? I continue to believe that all of this is just a happy, fun smokescreen for something else. So you hire someone away from Tesla and you give them a big salary because presumably you don't hire the former VP of vehicle engineering for peanuts, right? Yeah. Well, also he costs you money. To, also, you have to remember that Tesla is itself a little bit in trouble now. But yes, you give them a lot of money to lure them away. So you give him a lot of money for a smokescreen? But no, I don't. Th- I don't think it's intentionally a smokescreen. I think they're allowing this to happen, and it because it's a good smokescreen. Like a lot of the stuff that goes into building a car, or specifically an electric car, is also applicable to everything else Apple does. You know, mechanical engineering, materials science, battery science. All of this stuff is extremely important to the things Apple builds. And while they have car stuff, like CarPlay, the idea that they're actually going to, that they have, there is no group of people in the world so large uh, that they can keep a secret like this. Apple supposedly has a thousand, more than a thousand people working on this. Yeah. There is absolutely no way they have mobilized a thousand people on this project and nobody really knows anything about it. There's no group of people this large in the world that can keep a secret. It's just not. Like, the typical product team at Apple is, what, 150 people? Okay. If that? Yeah. So they suddenly have 1,000 people, which is roughly 10% of their full-time corporate staff on this one project, and nobody knows anything? I think not, my friends. Something doesn't add up for you. Yeah. I think they just are hiring a bunch of smart people who happen to do car stuff 
because they want to do something else cool that requires expertise that you develop while working on cars. Hmm. Yeah, whether that be new materials or different ways to apply existing materials or ways to get the most power out of the smallest, you know, uh, yeah. batteries, whatever it is, I think they have something else cooking that's not a car. But I may be wrong. Maybe I'm just a naysayer. You are a naysayer. You're also a naysayer about Tesla. So why do you think they're in trouble? I don't think they're in trouble so much as they're just having. You said they were I'm, in no, trouble. No, I don't think they're in trouble. I think they're having trouble. Okay. Why are they? What? What? How are they having trouble? Well, first of all, the Model X is a complete disaster. Like a total disaster. People, Model X, so for those of you who don't know how Tesla works, right? Uh, the first hundred-ish cars off the line are called founders models. And they go to uh, usually friends of executives or like longtime supporters of the company or people who have bought other Teslas, you know. And they usually build, like I said, about 100 of them, 100, 120, somewhere in there. And they're the cream of the crop, right? Like, these are hand-built cars. They're the pilot run. They're, yeah, but they're hand-built cars for very important people, like for opinion makers. <laughs> and people are getting their Model Xs, and, like, the windows won't roll up. You know? And they're going down the highway, and the autopilot sees phantom cars and slams on the brakes in the middle of the freeway. So they're having like serious major teething problems. The rumor that I heard, I don't know how true it is, is that Elon Musk fired the head of Model X QA and slept in his office for five days to personally approve or reject every Model X coming off the line until they could fix the problems. I don't know. I don't know how much I believe that story, but the reality is that they are having significant quality issues. Right, and but those quality issues are early issues and and totally not. Just, you know, they're they're not long term problems. Not, they're a teething not, problem. Yeah, but it's not like they're having problems with you know a piece of plastic falling off the dashboard, right? It's the window in the door won't roll up. We've had that, power windows in cars for sixty years, right? Well, we we've we have, although the first ones were vacuum powered, which was a disaster. So yeah, but still, we've been developing this process for more than half a century. You know, like, right? We, but so, we so we know that it's not the motor in the door that's the fault, right? It's it's something in how it's communicated to it. So there's a door computer, and the door computer isn't on the bus, and it's not getting the signal it needs, right? Yeah. Why is there a door computer? That's oh, Volkswagen does door computers. This is the whole I, thing with CAN bus. Every I, freaking I modern car in the world, every freaking car made in the last ten years, uh, no, not the last ten years. Let's say the last five to seven years has a door computer. Why? Why does this have to exist? Because there's a bus and everything has to be on the bus and communicate. Yeah, but you can't just have one computer that has a lot of wires? Um, that's not how it's developed in the history of the car world, right? If you open the door to a Volkswagen, there is a door computer that handles the telematics for the door, locks and windows. So then, all right, so here's the secondary question. And open-closed state. You have you have these problems a lot in luxury cars, right? Like short run luxury cars. Yeah. This is kind of expected. But when you're doing something that's mass produced like this. When you buy your Honda, it better not do that, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, congratulations, it will. Yeah, I mean I, I don't know. It just, it blows my mind 
that a company like Tesla can't make the window roll up properly. Well, clearly they can because Elon slept in the office and fixed it. <laughs> I don't think it's fixed yet. <laughs> well, so here's my concern, right? I, I totally get on a pilot run with hand-built cars that you're going to have kind of teething issues, and that's what you run a pilot run for is to find the teething issues and solve them so that when you go to mass production, when you turn on the line at full speed, you don't have the problem. They've taken a ton of orders for the Model 3, right? Mm-hmm. Exponentially more orders than they took for Model X or Model uh, Model S. And so when they turn on the pilot run for those cars, it has to be right. They, you know, they can't afford when they go to the big numbers of Model Model Three to have these kinds of problems, right? I mean, I don't. I was talking about this with some people the other day, and the conclusion we came to is that Tesla is trying to operate too much like a software startup. Well, I think right? that's absolutely they're, true. They're doing they're doing move fast and break things, but the problem is the things they're breaking are expensive cars, not Facebook. <laughs> Yes. Now, I was talking with uh, one of our listeners the other night who was great on the phone, and he has a Tesla. And he was telling me that a lot of his fellow Tesla drivers didn't know that their car gained new features when it got firmware updates. That, um, you know, he was able to show them that it could perpendicular park without having to do a whole lot to do it. He could just get out of the car or he could press a button and that it would perpendicular park. And that none of the other owners that he spoke to knew that it could do that. And he said, but don't they read the release notes? No, nobody no, reads Nobody the release reads notes. the release notes, yeah. And the... I don't, uh, think, I don't think most people even know what release notes are. Right. The, the other problem is uh, one of firmware queuing, right? He was telling me that they, they roll out the firmware updates and you agree to them and you schedule when you want it to occur because it takes an hour and it disables the car while it does it. And that if you don't accept it or don't install it, uh, in a timely fashion, that it simply decides you've declined firmware updates and you never get them again unless you call up and say to the service center, yes, can you please turn on the firmware update for my car and read them the VIN kind of thing. Are you sure the problem isn't the fact that your car gets firmware updates in the first place? That That's a different question. But in terms of acting like a software company, you know, they're rolling these things out. And if you say decline, you just don't get them. Yeah, this it's. I'm sorry. It's... I very much respect what they're doing. All right, I want to say this up front so that the flock of Tesla fanboys you need, you need to you need to be to a little more clear. You, well, you're going to get pitchforked anyway, but be clear about what you respect. I very much respect, first of all, the drivetrain technology that Tesla has developed, and the amount of effort they've put into making a fully electric car something that is, uh, I. The fact what they put into making a fully electric car an economic reality in America, all right, that I very much respect and admire. And they've got distribution. It's not like it's a hard thing to get. It's not like they made yeah. one of them. It's well, I mean, a real dude, production dude, vehicle. I, I live in Hong Kong, where I'm pretty sure they give Model S's away with bank accounts. All right. <laughs> Would you please There's, open an account for me then? They're Cause... everywhere. But anyway, I do not respect the manner in which they're going about it. Right. And be specific like, about that too. Clarify. Th the fact that you release what is essentially a beta car and then slowly bring it into GA status. Like, I don't, if I'm going to, if the car costs $50,000, it would be one thing. But the car costs $150,000. So, so wait, at, at 35000 is that acceptable? 
it's more acceptable. Why? If if the, this the is, if, right. if the mom who drives the kids around gets this car, is that acceptable that it breaks like that or that it's not ready for prime time as you suggest? And I'm, right. I'm not saying that it is, so don't pitchfork me. Pitchfork Shane. I am going to test the hypotheses. I am going to take a lot of crap for this for this standing, right? But if you, first of all, thirty five thousand is still an expensive car for most people. Most it's people actually don't the spend average it. amount. It's the average, so it's it's dead in the middle. Is it the average or the median? Uh, it is. It is the average. It is not the median. Okay, so then the median might actually be different slightly. But anyway, that's not the point. It's still for a lot of pe- for for the vast majority of the regularly car buying public, thirty five thousand is a lot of money. Yes. Right, you, the mom with two kids taking the soccer practice is probably not going to spend thirty-five grand on a car. Well, she spends that on an Odyssey Honda minivan. Really, an Odyssey is thirty-five grand? I don't know. Let's take a look. But um, I thought they were like twenty-five. I would be surprised. Uh, MSRP twenty-nine-four base model. Hmm, that's more expensive than I thought it would be. And the uh, the the most expensive model with all of the fits and the touring bit is forty-two grand. Holy crap! The EXL is thirty six five. Wow. All right. Anyway, so, yes. Go on. Back to my point. Thirty five grand is still a lot to spend on a car, right? Minivan or Tesla Model X, either way, or Model Three, either way. The reason that I think it's more acceptable in that kind of car is because you have a waiting list, right? And you're going to choose because you're Tesla. You're choosing the people you're selling this car to. So the people who are ponying up this cash for this car know what they're, by and large, getting into. And what you're doing is using these people's $150,000 to subsidize the last $70,000 of the car's development. Yes. You know, which people are, granted, people are willingly signing up for, but I think it's a little bit ridiculous. If I'm going to go spend $120,000 on a car or $150,000 on a car... I expect my car to function properly. You know, if I went and bought a $120,000 BMW, I would be able to roll the window up. Okay, but function properly is, for the most part, overstating it, right? These cars, their owners love them, and their owners love them for a reason, and not because they're disappointing them. They're clearly being pleased by them. Yes, I don't, I don't dispute that, but lots of people love ridiculous beta software, too, and that doesn't make... Lots of people like this podcast, and that doesn't make them smart. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So I'm, I'm going to move away from this because we're not going to get any closure on this one. Let me ask you about obsolescence because, you know, what's, what's, what do you think the obsolescence is for this kind of thing? Because we, we talked about Macs that don't get updates for a couple of years, and that's disappointing. What is it when your car stops getting updates? You know, do you have to throw away your car after three years? What's the useful life of, of a Tesla that's supported? So, sorry. first of all, if you can hear the background noise, there is what is either a dinosaur being born or an alien spacecraft somewhere in the neighborhood. But anyway, uh, I, so there's a Twitter account called internet of shit. Yes, there is. And it's hilarious. And it's exactly what it sounds like. And this is what I think of cars that get for that rely on firmware updates. If I buy a car and I don't connect it to the internet and my car gets bricked because it hasn't been connected to the internet, then the manufacturer has failed. You know, I don't need my refrigerator 
to be connected to the internet. Well, the refrigerator my, was the actual Samsung example that totally failed. Yeah. I don't need my toaster to be smart. Right? Well, or, or the good example is the light bulbs where if you fail to firmware update your light bulb, it not only takes down the light bulb, it takes down your whole Wi-Fi network. My favorite example are the light bulbs that run on uh, their own Wi-Fi networks with absolutely no security, just hidden SSIDs. Yes. Like, th- that kind of stuff is everywhere in the quote-unquote Internet of Things, and it's horrible. Like, people don't really... The general public has a total misunderstanding of what happens when every single thing you own has a chip in it, right? Well, security is one of those things that the the companies for a while, and, and some of them still do, have not paid any attention to securing their stuff. Nobody pays any attention to security. Well, you're you're wrong because the Apple HomeKit stuff is well secured. Well, yeah, okay, fine. Outside of five major corporations, the the Zigbee stuff is well mixed, but it's not on Wi-Fi, so you only have the one Wi-Fi bridge to secure, right? right? So there there are some of these things that are better than others. There are some of these things that are secured. It's the the stuff where the company makes their own path that isn't a HomeKit, that isn't a, works with Nest, that isn't one of these other well-defined ones that requires security, then you start to have to worry. Yeah. So we've gotten a little off the, the original question here, which is what happens when your card is a well, firmware Right, updates. right. So, you know, it's, well, it's not that, that's obsolescence, right? You know, y- yes, my car is obsolete. It's a 2005 model, but it still works, and I can still get dealer support if I need to. But with a firmware update situation, you know, do you want to own a five-year-old Tesla? Here's the other thing, right? You don't and, really And that own. was one of the things that, that the Tesla owner that I spoke with actually posited. It was, it was a question because he just doesn't know yet. Well, here's my question is, do you actually own your Tesla? Well, you're, you're going into the EULA and licensing terms thing, right? Because that's always yeah. been the question about software is when I buy software, what have I actually bought? Right. And like, the you, conjecture is you've bought the physical media that it came on. Right. But if the car is the so you bought the physical part of the car, but you didn't buy the software that actually runs it, so you've got a useless husk. Yeah, and it's not like my car has a carburetor that I can fix myself. You know, my car is completely useless. Right, but car manufacturers, software. all of car manufacturers, have been lobbying for that kind of thing for ages. Right, they want to use the, the they claim that they own the copyright on the software that runs their ECU, and that you can't work on your car. Right, yeah. they they keep yeah. putting in more and more expensive tools for independent shops to have to buy to be able to service them. Yeah, unless you live in Massachusetts. Why Massachusetts? Uh, you are required to be able to fix your own stuff in Massachusetts. So right. companies I mean, must provide you with the same equipment and information that they give to dealers. Well, they, they can provide you with the same information, but they can charge you for the tools. Yeah, they can charge you for it, but they have to give it to you is the point. Yeah. In, Cal- in California, had, they can just refuse to do it, but in Massachusetts, I, they must. I had, I had thought it was a federal thing, not, not a, not a state-by-state. State. Uh, no, right to repair is absolutely not federal. Intriguing. Uh, well, I do all the own work. All, I do all the work on my cars. I do all my own stuff, and uh, I'm, I'm quite happy doing that. But I, that's why I stick with older cars for the moment. Yeah, I I can't really comment because I have no. You car. can't relate. You haven't had a car in ten years. Yeah, I mean, I have. I ride in taxis if those count as having a car. <laughs> yeah. Well, technology has changed the way we live, man, and and technology changes everything around us. And one of our sponsors feels that technology has changed the way we do exercise, right? You know, the Mara has has the hands-free running assistant that uses voice recognition and the microphone in your earbuds to help optimize your runs. 
Um, she's hands-free. She talks to her using your earbuds. She uses voice commands. You tell her what kind of run you're doing and ask about your speed and pace and location. She plays albums and playlists from your li library, and she speaks first. She can tell you how you're doing and compare your past runs and your records. And she warns you about changes in weather, too, like if it's about to rain when you're, start when you're running. So you can see all your runs and all your history, and Mara recognizes what you've accomplished. And it also can be connected to all of your Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, like the Echo Dot or Tap. So you can ask Alexa for updates like, ask Mara how I ran last Thursday, or what's my average time for a 5K? So visit mara.ai to download your free virtual running assistant on your iPhone or Amazon Alexa device today. That's M-A-R-A dot A-I. Shane, we should really wrap this up, but I, I want to make sure that we talk about something before we go. And I want to talk about Bill Campbell. So The coach. The coach. And you called him the coach. So tell me, tell me about Bill Campbell and Bill's background. Uh, he was a man. Uh, he went to Columbia University. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking very low all of a sudden. That's very strange. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he was a guy who did a lot of cool stuff. Among those cool things, being an early Apple employee. Um, I mean, by early, I mean the early 80s, but still relatively early, considering Apple's 40 years old now. Um, he was a he was a marketing exec. He was a sales exec. Is that not the same thing? Uh, they're different. Okay. Well, for my purposes, they're the same thing. He was a market sales exec. Exec. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it was uh, John Scully time, wasn't it? Early 80s? Uh, preceding Scully, but it was that, that era. Yeah. Um, anyway, he was an exec at Apple. He, he and came in and worked with Jobs initially and then stayed with Apple after that. Then he worked... He worked with Jobs through the next era, and he was, a, uh, he was at Claris, I think. And then came and, and, of course, worked with Jobs this whole time. He was at Claris, I yeah, think. Yeah, he, he, he at, ran Claris. Yeah, um, and they had he had some kind of falling out with Scully over uh, Claris budget or something, Claris op or something about Claris operations, and left. And while he was gone, roaming the wilderness, he went and built into it into a major international financial powerhouse. Uh, and came back in 97 with Stevie uh, and served on the board until 2014, I think, which makes him the longest-serving board member in Apple's history. And long before all that, he was the coach of the Columbia University football team. Thus the coach. And he, he had a terrible record with that football team. That football team was one of the most losingest teams Columbia ever had. Uh, I hate to inform you of this, but everyone has a terrible record with the Columbia University football team. <laughs> there yeah, is, I don't, I don't think any is... Columbia coach has ever had a winning record. <laughs> so the the Columbia, you know, but but Bill Campbell was was well liked and well regarded throughout Silicon Valley, and he mentored a ton of people. And so I I just want to take a bit to run through some of the lessons that. Um, that, that he used to, to give people, that, that the things that we can learn from Bill Campbell because he passed away recently and, uh, you know, it was, it was such a thing that, that uh, Apple put him on the front page of their homepage and they don't do that for everyone and they, they delayed their earnings call so that everyone could attend the memorial service for him. So this is, is a significant point in Apple history and Campbell, Campbell was worried when he was a mentor. He worried about giving the wrong advice. Uh, he, he thought that people who are mentoring should give advice, but it's up to the mentee to make their own decisions, that, that you don't just listen to what you're being told kind of thing. Um, 
And he would always try and separate out what are the real problems, what are they trying to fix, and how much of the problem is a people problem, and how much is it technology, and how much is it process. Because separating other things out made it easier to figure out what you really have to address. Um, one of the problems that, that he saw a lot was that what, what is the role of a CEO, right? Shane, what do you think the role of a CEO is? Well, I think it depends on the organization and how big it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, the bigger it gets, the more chief email officer really is. The yeah. yeah. Well, well, for him, it was about breaking ties, right? The, ultimately, it's about understanding the big pre- picture and, and ending stalemates. Um, being rich doesn't make you smart is one of his things. You can't be afraid to hire people with bad character, that, that attitudes are contagious, and that one jerk spoils the entire team. Wait, did you say you can't be afraid to hire people with bad character? No, you can't be afraid to fire people with oh, bad fire. character. Fire, fire, to dismiss, to get rid of. I was gonna, I was gonna say that didn't make any sense at all. No, no, no. You know, he he placed a lot of importance on on founders as representing the best of a company because founders want to see the dream turn into reality. Uh, you know, when Jeff Bezos was was on paternity leave, the board of Amazon considered giving the operational role to someone else. The coach came in and defended Bezos because he believes founders care more about the outcome. Well, and, he's not wrong. No, well, definitely not. But but this is something that that obviously the board considered. Um, you know, it's it's we we also talk a lot about company culture, right? And one of the things that he taught Larry Page was to model the type of behavior he wanted to see at the company to try and show humility, to try and listen carefully to employees, because you know Page has an ego about his understanding of technology. But culture is about the way people behave, and and people follow the way you model. And those those are the kinds of things that we should take away from Bill Campbell. There, I'm sure there's more, but but that's that's what I've got, and we should remember that that there are a bunch of people whose names we don't necessarily think about a lot that guided the the icons that we do think about. You know, the Larry Pages, the Jeff Bezos, the Steve Jobs, and and like I said, Campbell was with Steve Jobs from the very beginning all the way through, or from the early days all the way through to to um, recent days and after Jobs. You know, there, there's a lot that we can learn from people we don't necessarily hear about a whole lot. I think if you're going to take anything away from Bill Campbell, it's not that there's a lot you can learn from people you don't hear about. It's that you don't have to be famous to be successful. Thank you. Thank you. And on that note, let's end the podcast. Shane, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, On the internet, you can find me on Apple Insider. You can also find me on Twitter, but I'm much more boring there. I don't tweet, so don't follow me on Twitter. That's a bad idea. Just read Apple Insider. No other websites. None. Not even like CNN, just Apple Insider. Just Apple Insider. And I'm Victor Marks, and this has been the Apple Insider Podcast. And next week, we'll talk more about reading only Apple Insider as your single sole source of news. This episode, we'd like to thank again to today's sponsor, Mara, a hands-free virtual running assistant that uses cutting-edge voice recognition technology to help you coach you to better runs. Play music, get updates on your location, pace, and weather, and compare your current speed with past runs without ever stopping to look at your phone. Using your earbuds, Mara can hear your commands and put them into action. And Mara can now be connected to any of your Amazon Alexa-enabled devices like the Echo, Dot, or Tap. Download your new running partner for free. Visit mara.ai today. Run with a sidekick. Make every mile count.